Please be seated for our Bible readings this morning, which, which Stuart will read for us. You may like to, to follow the first one. You may, you may not. Um, it comes with a health warning. So yes, these words that you are going to hear are in the Bible. It's taken from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. It can be found on page 809 in the Old Testament section of the Church Bible. In this reading, we hear of Ezekiel's oracle prophesying of Israel's beginning and their subsequent failure to keep the covenant by prostituting themselves with foreign gods. Despite God's judgment, we read also of a future time when God will reenact his covenant with them. The word of the Lord came to me. Mortal, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God, to Jerusalem. Your origin and your birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you out of compassion for you. But you were thrown out in the open field, for you were abandoned on the day you were born. To verse 8. I passed by you again and looked on you. You were at the age for love. I spread the edge of my cloak over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord God, and you became mine. To verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your fame and lavished your whorings on any passerby. You took some of your garments and made them for yourself, colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. Nothing like this has ever been or ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver that I had given you, and you made for yourself male images, and with them played the hall. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them. To verse 20b. As if your whorings were not enough, you slaughtered my children, and delivered them up as an offering to them. And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth, when you were naked and bare, flailing about 
in your blood. To verse 26. You played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Therefore, I stretched out my hand against you, reduced your rations, and gave you up to the will of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore with the Assyrians because you were insatiable. You played the whore with them, and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring with Chaldea, the land of merchants, and even with this, you were not satisfied. How sick is your heart, says the Lord, and you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen whore, building your platform at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a whore, because you scorned payment. Verse 35. Therefore, O whore, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 43. Because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with all these things, therefore I have returned your deeds upon your head says the Lord God. Have you not committed lewdness beyond all your abominations? Verse 59. Yes, thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath, breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish with you an everlasting covenant. Verse 62. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, in order that you may remember and be confounded, and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I forgive you all that you have done, says the Lord God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. The Gospel reading is taken from Luke, chapter 22, beginning at verse 19. It can be found on page 92 in the New Testament section of the Church Bible. In this reading, Jesus speaks of the significance of the meal we eat to remember his death. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, 
saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Thank you, Stuart. Please do be seated and let us pray together. So, Lord, as Ezekiel prayed, anoint these lips with the seal of your spirit, that my mouth would speak wisdom and the words of my heart bring meditation, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning to awaken our hearts, expand our minds to understand this text and shape our identity In you we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's let's be honest. There are parts of the Bible we don't understand. There are parts we find confusing, which to us seem weird. There are parts of the Bible we don't like, or which we may think seem distasteful. We may think the book of Ezekiel fulfills many or all of those criteria, especially in light of today's reading. It's why chapter 16 is one of the least likely to be read aloud in a church service, never mind preached upon. Due to the subject material, you now know why. It comes with a health warning. What you heard this morning was, if you like, a shortened summary in an English Bible, most of which choose to tone down the language. If you could read Hebrew, you would discover the depth of lewdness in that passage, which one commentator I read notes evokes images of the most vulgar sexual depravity and the most horrendous graphic violence. Yet, it's within the Bible. It was meant to shock, especially when the words came out of the mouth of a young priest. Whether it does today, when it's far easier to be exposed or experience such a reality, is a deeper question. So perhaps with some trepidation and with frequent pitfalls to avoid and wishing that I'd asked maybe Brian to preach on this passage, let's examine the text. You see, the past two weeks we've encountered, haven't we, two of Ezekiel's prophetic visions. We may have thought that he was on a few happy seeds, mightn't we, when we looked at those visions. Today, though, we switch to one of his many prophetic oracles, which are kind of rich in metaphorical symbolism and allegory. This one, if you like, reads something like an episode, if you like, at times, of a long-running old TV program, this is your life. To help us understand its meaning, I'm using a structure from Daniel Block, perhaps the leading expert on the book of Ezekiel, who spent 14 years of his life looking at this book and decided to then write two books on it that total nearly 1,200 pages, together with some of my own thoughts for us to follow this morning. As we begin, I don't know if you ever wondered, what was it? What was it that made God choose the Jews as his people? You'll notice from what Stuart read for us this morning in the description of the text of Israel's life story, absolutely nothing whatsoever. 
The origins of Israel's life story were as pagan as any of the nations they despised. That was what the references mean to the Canaanites, the Hittites, and Amorites. Further, we read that Israel's beginning is one of being destitute and hopeless. Of how they only survived childbirth because of God's loving grace in rescuing them. He describes them, doesn't he, as an abandoned baby girl left in a rubbish bin. Unloved and unclean. Unwanted and unclothed. Helpless to the elements. Of course, we we look at the text today, don't we, with our compassionate eyes thinking, well, if we saw an abandoned baby in a rubbish bin, of course we would help. Back then, it didn't happen. They were just an accepted tragedy. The sad reality being that there were too many abandoned babies and many who then did survive actually spent their days in slavery or prostitution. It's why God's rescue act was so gracious and Israel's subsequent snub so shocking. We go on to read in in verse 8 how God's abundance continues. How he lavishes his love upon them, entering into this special covenant with Israel, akin to a marriage. Elevating them, if you like, from the rubbish bin to the status of royalty. And adorning her with beauty and wealth and prosperity. Oh Israel, this is your life. And the introduction by Ezekiel of that word covenant, the word berit, is hugely significant. Because if I had one word, if you like, to sum up the central theme of the Bible, it would be that word covenant. Think about it for a minute. Another word for testament is covenant. Remember the covenant strapline that runs throughout the pages of the Bible when God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. The covenant was this formal agreement between two parties making binding, official and permanent. This relationship of loyal love, obedience and trust. That was why it was often spoke of using the metaphor of marriage. Most significantly, while God cuts covenants with different people in the Bible, always remember this. It is one covenant that is expressed differently or enhanced at critical points, if you like, in the history of the people of God as a new chapter begins. So in week one, you may remember if you've brought your sheep with you again this morning, I won't see how many have, or if you've lost it, there's another one on the table for you. You may remember how I said in the context of the prophets, it was the covenant that God cut with Moses in the book of Deuteronomy that was most important. That was the covenant that the prophets, all of them, were calling the Israelites to live by. And at the time of Israel's oracle law, Israel's life story was on the verge of exile because of their own failure to keep that covenant. Either because of injustice, as we would read in this text in verse 42, in their treatment of what's known as the quartet of the vulnerable, the poor, the immigrant, the widow, and the orphan in those days. But most of all, as we read through this text today, because of their idolatry, as Israel snubs her deliverer and divine benefactor by running after other gods 
or dispensing his gracious gifts to strange lovers. And what follows next, if you like, is a sorry tale of how Israel's life goes from royalty to rags as they repeatedly prostitute or whore themselves lusting after foreign gods. Is this what Israel's life has become? So before we look a bit at the sordid detail, I thought I'd try and lighten the load a moment by mentioning my encounter with a prostitute. I knew that might wake some of you up, especially before nine o'clock. See, it, it happened 20 years ago on a Friday afternoon. You don't think I'm being serious, do you? I am. Around two o'clock in a suburb of Walsall known as Karma. I'd just parked my car for a meeting. But because I couldn't park near the building where the meeting was being held, I parked up the road on the residential part of the street. And as I, if you like, walked down the street, I was approached by this woman, dressed quite modestly, who said, do you want to do business? As if taken back by shock, I said, pardon? To which she repeated, do you want to do business? Still in shock, I, I quickly said no and hurried along quickly to my meeting. You may not be surprised to know when I left that meeting, I made sure no one was walking on the street before returning to my car. Do you want to do business? You see, that was what had become for the Israelites a way of life as they entered into transactional arrangements with foreign powers and their deities. If you like soiling their sacred oaths to the living God who rescued them and then gave them everything. You see, the Hebrew word used to describe Israel's idolatry in terms of engaging in prostitution is the word zana. It occurs 21 times in 28 verses. To use such imagery to describe Israel's idolatry wasn't unique to Ezekiel. You'll find it in Hosea, you'll find it in Jeremiah as well. But the sheer offensiveness of calling Israel a whore or a prostitute so many times in such a short space of time, especially with such sexually explicit graphic detail, is breathtaking. Oh, Israel, is this now your life? You can read the text if you want later. If you want to read the magnitude, perhaps, and get a sense of the Hebrew, then read it in something like the message version. It's pretty explicit, it's pretty ugly, and it's pretty sick. As is prostitution. It was this prolonged, addictively repeated, insatiable promiscuity with multiple partners. From the verses that Stuart read for us, we can see that their idolatry, if you like, in terms of their prostitution was split into two parts. There was religious prostitution in terms of their worship for idols and then there was political prostitution in their lusting after and courtship with the superpowers of the day, the Egyptians, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. It's therefore no surprise we find God saying to his people in verse 30, how sick 
is your heart. Neither perhaps is it therefore a surprise for Israel to discover that God is as passionate with his judgment as he had been with his love. That his judgment will be severe for extreme behavior with Israel literally being stripped naked, losing everything that she ever had possessed. Oh Israel, what has your life become? From rags to royalty to ruin. We'll look next week at the theme of God's judgment. But that is not the end of your life story. That is not the end of Israel's life story. You see, after judgment, we read that Israel will experience this new outpouring of divine grace. She will be forgiven her sins. She will be accepted once more as God's covenant people. But also she will shamefully recognize that the past disruption in her relationship with God was not his fault, but her own. From ruin through remorse is restoration. And so as I was preparing this message, it was in these final, if you like, five or six verses from 59 onwards that if you like, the text started to become a bit alive for me, when if you like, I got that sense that God wanted to say something. And he wanted to say something, he said to me, through two words, two words that we see linked together repeatedly in this passage. Those words are the word covenant and the word remember, the Hebrew word zakah. And as I was thinking about this, I kept thinking, what would God want us to remember, if you like, about his covenant this morning? You see, it'd be very easy to just get focused on all the bad stuff, but what would God want us to remember about his covenant this morning? And when God starts to speak to me in this way, if you like, I don't know why he's stirring me. Frequently, it only comes as if you like, you spend the time wrestling with the text. And as I did then, if you like, he did in two ways. Here's the first. In verse 60, we hear that first we read, God remembered his covenant. I've since found out when I started to look at that verse that it's actually the only time in the whole of the Old Testament prophetic books, not just Ezekiel, that remember is used in the context of God. You see, when the Bible says God remembered, it doesn't mean that God had forgotten. It means that God was about to act towards someone. If you like a focusing upon the object of memory, the Israelites, that results in action. For instance, way back at the beginning of the book of Exodus when the Israelites had been in slavery for 430 years in Egypt, it says God remembered his covenant with them. Now as the Israelites are bound up not in the slavery of their youth but are bound up of slavery in exile, that despite their treatment of his covenant and treating it with contempt, God is now saying to them, he will reenact his ancient promises because of his very nature. This time though, God says it will be an everlasting covenant as God outlines later in the book. The way that he will establish this covenant will be messy, will be ugly, 
as he sends royalty, his son Jesus Christ, into this world of rags and he cuts the covenant as he ruins his own life by shedding his blood for our sin. And Jesus dies this shameful, humiliating, obscene, public death on the cross despite being an innocent man. And his ruined body would have been thrown into the public Jerusalem rubbish bin. Yet it's put in a tomb before God raises him up and restores his life. This is his life. And God says this is what it means to remember God remembered. Never forget the power and preciousness of his covenant in your life. But then he said something else to me, and he said, secondly, the word remember is used in the context of humanity. If we look in this text in verses 62 and 63, God says, now you remember what it means when it says God remembered. This is what I want you to remember for your life story. You see, the Hebrew word remember is the word zakar. It means to remember with purpose. It doesn't mean don't forget. It means never forget and use all of your body, not just your head, but the whole of your body, your hands, your lips, your feet, your heart, to engage in whatever action that remembrance requires. And so as I thought, well, what does that look like? Three things came to mind. Firstly, that we need to remember a healthy shame of our sin. That's why we practice confession and why we need it. And the power of God's forgiveness. You see, there's a lot wrong with feeling shame, isn't there? From the scorn of others or beating ourselves up with guilt. But there's also a good in remembering what we once were. Of how our sin ruins us. And be remorseful, because sin is ugly. It always leaves a mark. We are all scarred. It's why the rescue of grace is so special, because it quickens that memory, doesn't it? Of past infidelity, of present unworthiness, and heightens our amazement at God's love for each of us. You see, in all of our life stories, remember, we're all sinners, aren't we? We're all saved by grace, nothing more. It's why we need to practice confession. You know, in a world which often glamorizes the sexual, doesn't it? You know, do we view our idolatry as it's seen in the eyes of God? You see, it isn't God who needs us to practice confession. He isn't, if you like, clutching tightly to his mercy as if we have to try and pry it from him. The purpose of confession isn't, is not for us to come in rags but to remember, be remorseful, be healed and be transformed through that act of confession and repentance because it liberates us from the ruin of guilt and shame. And then we remember how great God is. The liberating power, if you like, of forgiveness because it's the greatest gift we need in all of our lives. There's no future without forgiveness. And through it, we know the love. The love of God, of what it means to be 
elevated to royalty in Christ. So Lord, would you take these words and would we remember your covenant with us, that your love for us is eternal. And would you continue to do your work in us, to change us, to be more like you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.